Hi everybody, I'm Katie. And I'm Rhiannon. And welcome to Haunting Cases. because I, I started thing I don't, I don't know <laughs> uh, do you have any stories for us today Ray? Uh, I don't know if I have any stories I have a, a warning that some neighbors have been shooting off fireworks <laughs> oh you're not alone so, uh, yeah heads up <laughs> there may be some loud bangs in the background <laughs> as long as I'm not ducking and covering we're fine <laughs> same goes for me same goes for me there might be some loud noises in the background you might hear my stomach rumble a little bit because I don't know what the heck's wrong with it now I've made it angry <laughs> it's just me and my upset tummy against the world and she's fucking backing out man <laughs> it's all good oh god um oh yeah I, I don't think i have any stories though just just the warning about the fireworks <laughs> outside of that like i finished stranger things yesterday i don't know Ooh. if you watched it yet nah i haven't watched it yet i'm waiting for the family to catch up i thought everybody had watched it or i mean watched the last season i should say so we, I, we thought we were going to start watching the new season tonight, but then I can't remember if it was Mom or Watson. Somebody apparently has a few more episodes in the last season. And I was like, come on, you've had plenty of time to do this. <laughs> <laughs> um, of course, I'm not going to give away spoilers, but I can say that I am mildly upset. Like, I cried. Oh, oh great. <laughs> that probably means I'm going to be upset, too. I'm mildly <laughs> upset. A little bit of like a jalapeno. I wouldn't put myself too far up on the school bill. Just mild. <laughs> <laughs> somebody's out there going like, a jalapeno is that mild. <laughs> <laughs> it's probably going to be my friend Sherry who thinks mayo is spicy. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Sherry. I'm going to hear that later. Anyway. Uh... <sighs> All right. I hate to cut banter short, but I have a lot to get through in a short amount of time. So here come the trigger warnings. Don't While we understand that some individuals listen for the entertainment aspect of true crime, it's important to remember that these are real people with families and friends who may still be suffering from their loss. These stories are not meant to open old wounds or cause further emotional damage to those involved. We remind you to please be respectful, do not dox, or contact those involved with cases. While paranormal occurrences and urban legends may be sources of tourism, please be considerate if you visit one of these locations. Do not engage in trespassing and be sure to ask for permission if you plan on recording. Be aware of your surroundings and travel safely. The cases discussed in this podcast may be disturbing to some listeners. Listener discretion is advised. And we're back. And we're back with Reese Dun Dun, fucking Law and Order. Dun dun. <laughs> <laughs> so today, I actually do not have a true crime story for you. I have a morbid couple of stories. 
But no true crime one. And that's mainly because I really just wanted to get away from the murder for a little bit. <laughs> I just want to break from the murder. I just wanted to break from the murder. But honestly, I don't uh, think this was the break I was looking for. <laughs> oh, shit. <laughs> Great. I cannot tell you how many bodies I have like seen in the last couple days working on this. So oh. I highly suggest if you look up anything regarding this, please... Please, please be prepared because you're going to see things immediately. And I mean, like, things on the Google, like, front page Damn. of your search. Okay, so just a heads up. If you decide to go ahead and dig in a little bit deeper after this, you're going to see dead people. <laughs> I see dead people. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> But anyways, I left Rhea off last week wondering what we're talking about today. Because I've mentioned this at least in two previous episodes. Two? I thought it was only one. Nope, I mentioned it before this too. Uh, now I feel even worse about not knowing what it is. <laughs> My friend like mentioned it to me and they're like, you said this in like episode like four or five. I'm like, I did? And they're like, yeah. I'm like... Okay, well, I guess we're doing it now then. <laughs> but, Bree, any last minute guesses before I get started? Oh gosh, I don't even know what to guess. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Oh gosh, that firework scared me. I was not right. <laughs> I heard that. My heart. <laughs> I was like mentally preparing myself for whatever was going to come out of your mouth next. And I was like, Gotta be ready, gotta be ready. And the firework was like, boom. And I was like, I'm not ready. <laughs> the dramatic climax. All right. <laughs> Anyways, let's get started. So, Earth's highest mountain above sea level is located in the Manhunlangura Himal subrange in the Himalayas. Shit, I should have guessed this! Oh, you talk about it so much and it didn't come to my brain. <laughs> I'm so happy that was the reaction. <laughs> it wasn't me screaming, but that was a good one. <laughs> so... Its summit runs across the China-Nepal border with an elevation of 8,848.86 meters or 29,031.7 feet. Every year, Everest attracts many climbers varying in inexperienced to highly experienced mountaineers. There are two climbing routes to the southeast in Nepal and another one in the northeast in Tibet. Climbing Everest, climbing Everest presents multiple different dangers, including altitude sickness, weather, wind, avalanches, the Kumbu icefall, and below freezing temperatures. <laughs> Are you ready? <laughs> 
I don't know. You've talked a lot about how many bodies are there, so now I don't know what my favorite is. Well, well, right now I'm gonna take you up the southeast ridge. Okay, so I'm gonna take okay. you up both routes and let you know kind of what's going on. And I apologize ahead of time. There's going to be a lot of numbers in this area, so just a heads up. It's more of just to get you familiar with where these regions kind of are on Mount Everest and how high up it actually is. So the ascent via the Southeast Ridge begins with a trek to the base camp at 5,380 meters above sea level to the south side of Everest in Nepal. Expeditions usually fly to Lukia from Kathmandu and pass through the Namchi Bazaar. The climbers will then hike to the base camp, which usually takes six to eight days, allowing for proper altitude acclimation in order to prevent altitude sickness. The supplies are usually carried by yaks and human porters to the base camp on the Kumbu Glacier. The climbers usually spend a couple of weeks in the space camp acclimating to the altitude. During that time, Sherpas and expedition climbers set up ropes and ladders at the cat. <clears throat> oh my God, my fucking throat. <laughs> Sherpas and expedition climbers set up ropes and ladders in the Kumbu Icefall. Now, I had to go look up what the Kumbu Icefall was, and it is actually a glacier that moves down Mount Everest every day at an estimated three to four feet per day. Shit. Right? Oh, I, I saw that. I'm like, that can't be right. I had to go look at like three different sources. I'm like, three to four feet? <laughs> That's a whole me. <laughs> I'm not three feet tall. I'm like five foot two, but that's close enough. It's like half my body. Yeah, I just think about if that's a set point that they go to regularly, well, just in general people go to, it's moving every day lower and lower. So if you start at the beginning of the year versus the end of the year, that's a significant difference. So it kind of surprises me that's their go-to point and they would pick something else because the more time passes, the lower you're going to be and the farther up you're going to have to go. Exactly. I'm like, oh my god, that's terrifying, but... I guess what happens is that with the Kumbu is that as it's moving down Everest, it's still building on top of Everest too. So there's really like, you'll have mm. gaping crevasses in this area that are hundreds of feet deep and at least 50 feet wide. But wow. that's ever alternating because it's continuously moving down. Oh my God. That's freaky. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm like, that's intimidating enough. If I made it past that, yeah. we'd be golden. I'd be good to go home. Helicopter me out because I'm not climbing back down. <laughs> oh, man. Now, due to the consistent glacier motion, as well as the extreme snowfall, Everest regularly gets snow bridges that conceal crevasses in this area. And these crevasses can open and collapse with little to no warning, making it extremely dangerous for climbers. Shit. That's now, absolutely terrifying. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Uh, just like, oh, that's intimidating. 
That's intense. Yeah, I might just stay at base camp. I don't even want to go no, up the mountain. No, I, I'm never going. It's not happening. It's not happening. <laughs> um, I wasn't born in that kind of explorer. <laughs> you'll go inside a cave that you're like, outside? No. No, thank you. <laughs> Granted, this is a very intimidating mountain. Seriously. Oh, my gosh. Um, climbers get caught in avalanches and other movement events on Everest can do very little to avoid injury. And even at these crossing sections of the Kumbu Icefall, where there are extensive ropes and ladder networks to try to avoid any type of injury or possible death by the professional guides and anyone else that's traversing these areas... It cannot prevent loss of life. So, starting out strong, you can die in the, the Kumbu Icefall. Oh, great. <laughs> Just what I wanted to hear. Oh, yeah. Most climbers will try to pass through the icefall before sunrise. It's usually more immobile at that time due to freezing temperatures in the nighttime, causing it to slow its descent down the mountain as well as avoiding it during to mid to late afternoon hours as the sun has had time to warm the area and create ice melt, which can cause, which can cause. Cause. That's all. Which can cause the structure to decline and ultimately shift underweight. Most experienced climbers will ascend the ice fall in a few hours, while the inexperienced or non-acclimated climbers will take an average of 10 to 12 hours to complete the passage. Which is absolutely horrifying, because you're basically racing against the clock in that area. Yeah, I don't like that. Not cool. Camp 1 on Everest South Coal Route is just beyond the top of the Kumbu ice fall at about 6,065 meters, or 19,900 feet. From here, the climbers will make their way to the Western CWM, which is actually pronounced CUM, which is Welsh for valley, but my inappropriate little 14-year-old brain is like, <laughs> CUM. Um, <laughs> so. Damn, I didn't know they had a, a Welsh term on there. I rarely ever you're welsh anything anywhere that's crazy i know i'm like i had to add it in just because i know that you're welsh i'm like oh Rhea will like that yes major brownie points with three good 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 i'm glad you're not upset at me yet now the western cum is a broad and flat glacier like valley with huge lateral crevasses in its center, which prevent direct access to the upper reaches of the cum. Climbers are forced to cross on the far right to the base of the Nupti, which is a small passageway also known as the Nupti Corner. Now, I don't know if people go through there or whatnot. Maybe if you're more adventurous, you go through there, but... From what I know, that's just what it's called. Now, the Western Cum is also the Valley of Silence, as its topography of the area generally cuts off any wind from the climbing route. So it's completely quiet in there. But wow. unfortunately, 
Due to this and the high altitude, and if it's mixed with a clear day, this can make it uncomfortably hot for climbers that are wearing all that winter gear. So you can get heat exhaustion in that area. Oh, man. After crossing this area, Camp 2, or Advanced Base Camp, we'll also be calling this ABC throughout this area, is established at 6,500 meters or 21,300 feet. Climbers will then ascend the Loti face on fixed ropes to Camp 3, located on a small ledge at 7,470 meters or 24,500 feet. I don't like the idea of a small ledge. I don't either. <laughs> I really don't either, but it gets so much worse. Oh, great. <laughs> From this area, it's another 500 meters to Camp 4 on the South Pole at 7,920 meters or 26,000 feet. From Camp 3 to Camp 4, climbers are faced with two additional challenges, including the Geneva Spur and the Yellow Band. Now, depending on what source you go with, either the Yellow Band comes first or the Geneva Spur comes first, but there is a mixture of results coming through, so I am going to just kind of list them out as the Geneva Spur and then the Yellow Band, but based on where you get your information, it switches continuously, so I'm not sure what really comes first. So the Geneva Spur is a anvil-shaped rock buttress near the summit of Everest. Fixed ropes assist climbers in traversing this snow-covered rock. However, the yellow band still remains after this. Now, the yellow band is a section of interlayered marble, pyrite, and semaceous rock, and it requires about 100 meters of rope to even transverse it. Once climbers pass this area, they enter an area known as the death zone. This is where the oxygen levels are only a third of what they are at sea level, and the biometric pressure increases to where weight is 10 times heavier. Oh, gosh. Yeah. So this combination makes climbers feel disoriented, sluggish, heavily fatigued, and can cause extreme distress on organs even after you've summited and come back down from Everest and gone home. So for this reason, climbers making the summit can only endure about two at max three days within the death zone. So if weather is not clear at this point and does not show any progress of clearing in the next few days, climbers will be forced to descend to a safer camp or many all the way back to the base camp. Oh my god. That would be so frustrating if you had to go all the way back. It would. It would be heartbreaking. So from Camp 4, climbers will begin their summit push around midnight with hopes of making it to the summit within 10 to 12 hours. The balcony is the first point at about 8,400 meters or 27,600 feet and is a small platform where climbers can rest and gaze at the surrounding peaks to the south and the east in the early light of dawn. As they continue up the ridge, climbers then ascend the imposing rock steps, which will usually force them to the east into waist-deep snow, causing serious avalanche hazards as they do. 
at 8,750 meters or 28,700 feet, a small table-sized dome of ice and snow marks the south summit of Everest. From this area, climbers will follow a southeast ridge known as the Cornice Traverse, where snow clings to intermittent rock. At this point, one wrong step to the left can send an individual down the southwest face 2,400 meters or 7,900 feet, while one wrong step to the right can send an individual down 3,000 50 meters or 10,010 feet down the Kangsheng face. This is kind of a morbid thought, but it just popped in my head. I wonder if, if you did fall that far of a distance, if you'd end up blacking out before you actually like hit something just with like how, with the air, like it's already hard to breathe. And if you're panicking, (laughs) I wonder if you just like black out before you hit bottom. Cause otherwise I was thinking a fall out far, like that's nightmare fuel right there. That is nightmare fuel right there. (laughs) I, I would definitely hope that's reality of like, it's just so much different air pressure going on. And like, I would imagine like you would have a little bit of like a G force hit you. To the mm. point that you would just boop out. I know I would go boop yeah. out because I have no <laughs> fucking red blood cells to support me right now as it is. <laughs> but then again, I wouldn't be on the mountain. <laughs> Now's not the time to climb out. Now's not the time. time. No iron. We're going to reschedule. <laughs> oh, God. So at the end of this traverse, there is an imposing 12 meter rock wall. And once past this point, it is considerably easy to climb to the top of the moderately angled slope. Hmm. However, exposure in this area is quite extreme, especially while traversing large amounts of snow. This is basically the tippy top of Everest. There is nowhere else to go up. You may go no further. You may not pass go. You may not collect $200. Okay? You're at the top. (laughs) So... Now we're going to come in from the Northridge route, which begins in Tibet. Expeditions trek the Rongbuk Glacier, setting up base camp at about 5,180 meters on the gravel plain just below the glacier. This is at about 16,990 feet. I had to go find these numbers and do math, so they might be a little off. It's been a while. To reach Camp 2, climbers must ascend the medial moraine of the East Rongbuk Glacier up to the base camp of Changtze, which is another mountain that is connected to Mount Everest around 6,100 meters or 20,000 feet. Camp 3 is the ABC on this side and is situated below the North Coal at 6,500 meters, around 21,300 feet. To reach Camp 4 on the North Coal, climbers must ascend the glacier to the foot of the coal, where fixed ropes are used to reach the North Coal at 7,010 meters or 23,000 feet. From here, climbers can ascend the rocky North Ridge to set up Camp 5 at around 7,775 meters, or 25,500 feet. 
This route crosses the north face in the diagonal direction of the climb and will meet up with the yellow band, reaching Camp 6 at about 8,230 meters or 27,000 feet. From Camp 6, climbers can then make their push to the summit that's actually very similar to that of the Southeast Passage because from what I found, they meet up at this point. That being said, as of 2019, over 300 people have died on Mount Everest, and many of those bodies still remain on the mountain, making Everest not only the tallest mountain in the world, but also the world's largest open-air graveyard. Do we think that number's accurate, or is it possible more have died and we just don't know? It's possible more have died and we just don't know, because people uh. do stupid things, unfortunately. Oh my god. So, 300 is a very rough estimate number, but it's found that about 1 in 10 people will perish every climb. Two-thirds of the bodies are buried in snow and ice. Sherpas alone account for one-third of climbing deaths on the mountain, and Sherpas are basically guides that live in the area and work day in and day out on these paths. Wow. Standard protocol is to leave the dead where they died. So many of the corpses are still in the place that they fell, serving as a chilling warning to climbers making their way to the summit, as well as a gruesome mile marker. So is that standard protocol so that the rest of the team can get out safely? Like, is it too much too much exertion to try to bring a body back, or what's the deal with that? It's a lot of exertion to bring a body back, and it's incredibly dangerous to try to even do it, and we'll see it as we go into the actual deaths that I'm going to list out and kind of talk about today. Okay. There's a lot to take into consideration as far as self-preservation, as well as there's things called like summit fever, where people get so set on going to the summit of Mount Everest that uh -huh. they just negate everything else around them. Safety for mm. themselves, others, and possible lives of others that have basically fallen on the track on their way up. Wow. So... Then there's the area in the death zone, known as Rainbow Valley, which is an area filled with dead bodies still wearing their brightly colored winter gear. Oh, God. Bye-bye. Uh, <laughs> I don't like it. <laughs> Too visual. <laughs> it's very visual and, like, this will put it into perspective for you. Like, if you go looking for this, which I don't recommend, but if you've got that morbid curiosity and you want to see for yourself, it was one of those things that I was eating breakfast when I came back to this today. <laughs> and I went, I really can't be eating right now. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, that's terrible. That's very grisly, for sure. We haven't even gotten into the, the details. We're about to. So, Rhiannon, are you ready for the bodies on Mount Everest? It's a race I'll ever be. 
So we're going to start with the earliest body. I did try to line these up in a timeline fashion. But George Mallory was the original founder of the Northern Approach to the Mountain, and Andrew Irving made the attempt to summit Everest on June 8th of 1924. The two men disappeared on the mountain after departing from the camp at 26,800 feet. Now, because this is their first like ever summit attempt, they weren't really any camp set up at that point because these are the first people on the mountain and going yeah. up that far. Mm-hmm. So it's at around 26,800 feet, roughly, is where they were last like in communication with people. Got it. They were last seen ascending the upper ridge just 250 meters below the summit and were, quote, going strong for the top. The clouds then obscured the view of individuals watching the two, and they disappeared into history, sparking one of the largest debates in Everest's history if Mallory was actually the first person ever to reach the summit. Wow. The first Everest climbers did leave behind a treasure trove of artifacts for archaeologists, including tents, oxygen bottles, food, and other equipment. Wow. In 1933, a British expedition recovered Irving's axe at about 8,450 meters, just below the ridge of like the first step or the rock steps before the summit. This axe was the first piece of evidence regarding the two's summit. However, some interpreted this as the piece of equipment lost along the way when Mallory and Irving possibly fell to their deaths. The topography in this area was suggested to be a spot like that was unlikely for a fatal fall at the time. So it would be unlikely that they died in that area, according to mm-hmm. researchers. However, it was left still up in the air and completely unsure. Information came forward in 1975 from a Chinese climber who stated they'd observed a body of an English dead at around 8,200 meters, close to the highest Chinese camp on Everest. The Chinese climber described this finding to a Japanese climber when he was back on the mountain in 1979. However, the Chinese climber died to an avalanche the next day when he began his ascent, leaving the story to have no possibility of being confirmed by the individual that saw the body. Mm. However, if the story was correct, it had to be either Mallory or Irving, as no other British or English climbers were missing on this part of Everest at this time. Wow. In 1999, the Mallory and Irving research expedition set out to locate the English dead sighted in 1975 and 1979. The sighting was beneath the ice axe that was found on the ridge, So the body was believed to be that of Irving. The north face is often covered in snow, which would have made the search for the body near impossible. However, in 1999, 
Strong winds had carried the snow off the side, exposing the rock and gravel of the north face below. Hmm. So, very lucky. Yeah. When expeditioners reached the search area, they spread out and walked across the steep mountainside. There were a number of bodies from fallen climbers in the search area, but their high-tech equipment proved to any type of researcher or archaeologist that these were more recent victims. Mm. However, one researcher began waving his arms frantically at his colleagues when he discovered an older body. This body was face down on the slope, his hands outstretched upwards as if he had attempted to slow or stop his fall, along with a rope attached at his waist, which had produced an injury during his fall, or presumed injury Uh. during his fall. The winds had torn the clothes from his back, and when the researchers separated the remaining layers of clothing to the back of the neck, they found a name tag which had the name George Mallory. It's presumed that the rope around his waist bound him to his climbing partner, Irving. The team took a number of small items from Mallory as well as photographed the body before covering it with rocks to prevent any scavenging from birds or possible anyone like wanting to take pictures with it. Since the finding of Mallory's body, there have been a number of attempts to find Irving. However, he has never been found in a Presumably, that rope was either broken or cut. Mm. So, there's our first ever victim to this mountain. Wow. I wonder if it's possible if Mallory was the first one to die, if Irving cut the rope to try to get back down just by himself and then Mm -hmm. perished somewhere else, and that's one of the reasons why they haven't been able to recover the body. Well, thinking of it like in a cinematic style because I'm mm-hmm. not entirely sure how accurate it is. My <laughs> mindset of how things lined up is that Irving's axe is still up on the ridge, so Mallory might have slipped, and in a desperate attempt to save himself, Irving smashed that axe into the side of the mountain to get some leverage, and then might have cut the rope, or the rope might have snapped. Oh, okay, I see. Yeah. The next one I have is Hennelore Schmetz. In 1979, German mountaineer Hennelore Schmetz became the fourth woman in history to reach Mount Everest summit. And at the same time, her 50-year-old husband, Gerald, became the oldest person to reach the peak. Wow. Right? I'm like, go Gerald. This would have been a remarkable accomplishment to both Hennelore and Gerald if it were not for the tragedy that occurred right after their summit. Now, some background information on the Schmatzes. Both of these individuals had summited multiple mountains in their lifetime, and just four years prior to when they decided that they were going to scale Everest, they had decided that every year leading up to Everest, they would climb a new mountain to prepare. Wow. This included the eighth tallest mountaintop, Menatsu. Oof. They had some serious goals. I know, right? I'm like, uh, my couple goals are just sitting on the couch cuddling at like 8 p.m. <laughs> 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 I feel 
feel like I need to step up my game. (laughs) Have somebody that wants to like forge Everest with me. Put that on my Tinder profile. (laughs) Yeah, sorry, I won't be your friend to do that with you. (laughs) Not after this podcast episode. (laughs) To be fair, I won't. I won't do that. (laughs) That is one of those things that I will not do. Um, Jarrell described his wife as a genius when it came to sourcing and transporting expedition materials while he was more in charge of the logistics and technological aspects of their climb. With their equipment ready and six other professional climbers at their side, the two set out to summit Everest in July of 1979. After making it through the Yellow Band and the Geneva Spur, the Schmetzes reached the South Coal camp at 26,200 feet on September 24th and set up the last high camp of their trek. However, a days-long blizzard forced them back down the mountain. On their second ascent attempt, the couple split up, not realizing that the split would be forever. Gerald's group made it back to the South Coal first and began the journey to Everest Peak. They managed to reach the summit on October 1st, but were forced back down due to rapidly declining weather conditions. Meanwhile, Hennelore and her team were warned by a descending group that it was becoming too dangerous to continue. However, Gerald's notes described his wife as indignant and she was focused onwards to the summit at 5 a.m. the following day. Gerald made it back to the base camp at 6 p.m. that afternoon and was alerted via the radio that his wife had made it to the top. Unfortunately, Hennelore and an American climber, Ray Gennett, were both overcome with exhaustion during their descent, and despite the warnings of taking refuge by their accompanying Sherpas, they built camp and took shelter in the death zone. Oh. Gennett died of hypothermia, while Hennelore and the two Sherpas frantically attempted their descent. Unfortunately, her body had already began to shut down, and her last words were, water. Water before she sat down with no energy left to spare, slumped against her backpack and passed. Hannelore Schmetz was the first woman and the first German national to die on Everest. There was an attempt by a police inspector in 1984 to retrieve Hannelore's body, but however, the inspector and his guide both fell when they attempted to reach her and they were found dead in their entangled ropes. Uh. More tragedy struck Hannelore's body in the mid to late, like late 90s, from what I could find. And she was presumed to have been blown off the mountain's edge and down the Kengsung face. Wow. From what I could find, Gerald did live in Tutu until 2005. Okay, I was going to ask if he survived since you had said he had made it back to base camp. I wasn't sure if he had tried to go retrieve her body himself or if he was able to escape. 
I don't know if he wanted to take the chance. I, I don't think wanted's the right word for that because, of course, if your loved one's up there, you want to go. Mm-hmm. But I don't think he had the strength after everything. Yeah. And since he was at base camp, there's presumably more people down there to stop him from going back up, especially yeah. on the southeast ridge where you have to go through the Kumbu ice fall. Mm-hmm. So definitely, it's questionable if there were even like still things available to go through there, or if they had to set it back up. And then the question is, is she going to be okay by the time he gets there? Because this is days of trekking to get up there. So yeah, I can only imagine, but that's absolutely heartbreaking. Yeah, definitely. Now. Wow. This next person absolutely tears me up inside because it's another very similar couples in situation. And this is Francis Arzentiv. The night before Francis Arzentiv set to venture to Nepal to climb Everest in May of 1998, her 11-year-old son had a ominous nightmare about seeing two climbers trapped and afraid in a flurry of white snow and intense wind, to which she responded to this nightmare that I have to go do this. Despite her confidence, Frances was not a climber, but she was married to one. Her husband, Sergei, was known as the Snow Leopard and had actually scaled five of the highest peaks in Russia. She'd agreed to climb Everest with him when he asked. Were they training in advance? For, I mean, was she training in advance for this as an amateur climber? I have no idea. Oh my god. I feel like that's a lot to ask of your spouse, especially if you know they're not experienced in something mm-hmm. like that. And it's life-threatening even to experts who have been doing it for years. Yeah, that's a lot to ask, but... I don't know if they prepared or did anything to kind of, like, do this. I don't know if it was just, like, that, like, spur of the moment, like, hey, want to go up Everest with me? And she went, sure, why not? Yeah. Because I know I've I've done that, not for that type of question, but I've done that, like, oh, (laughs) you want to go do this? I'm like, yeah, why not? Yeah. But before leaving base camp, the Arzentives had befriended another climbing couple, one Ian Woodall and Kathy O'Dowald, who shared their same enthusiasm, and the four of them bonded very well before beginning their journey. The Arzentives began their final ascent on May 22nd, after two aborted attempts on May 20th and May 21st. Due to the absence of oxygen supplementation, In the high altitude, the two moved slowly and summited dangerously late in the day. So these two were going up with no oxygen supplements or bottled oxygen, which is desperately, like, I wouldn't say required, but recommended in that area. Yeah, that seems very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Their expedition saw the pair reach Mount Everest peak without using supplemental oxygen, Frances made history doing so as she was the first American woman to summit the treacherous mountain without breathing aids. Unfortunately, this would be the last thing that she ever accomplished. 
And due to the late summoning of the peak, it forced the two to spend another night above 8,000 feet. And at some point during this event or evening, the two became separated. Sergei made his way back down to camp the following morning, only to find that his wife had not yet arrived. Realizing that she must have been somewhere within the death zone still, he set off to find her, carrying oxygen and medicine with him. On the morning of May 23rd, Francis's body was encountered by another team, climbing the last few hundred meters to the summit. She was reportedly half-conscious and affected by oxygen deprivation and frostbite. She was unable to move on her own, and they attended to her with oxygen as they carried her as far down as they safely could. The team made their way back down after depleting most of their oxygen and encountered Sergei making his way back up to her. This would be the last time that Sergei was ever seen alive. On the morning of May 24th, O'Dowell and Woodall, as well as several other climbers, encountered Francis's body on their way to the summit. She was still in the same location she had been the evening before, and Sergei's ice axe, as well as some rope, were nearby, but he was nowhere to be found. Uh. Both Woodall and Dowell called off their summits after seeing spasmic twitching and jerks from Francis, and as the couple neared her, they could hear three sentences being repeated over and over again. Don't leave me. Why are you doing this to me? And I'm an American. O'Dell recognized who Francis was on the last sentence and later noted that I didn't know her immediately. Her face was frostbitten, but not the way one thinks. It was waxy, white, and incredibly smooth. She looked like Sleeping Beauty. It made her look much younger than she was. Unfortunately, though, as the cold grew and their own fear for safety drew in as the hours passed, O'Dowd and Woodall retreated to camp, leaving Francis. Uh. O'Dell and Woodall had previously summited twice, and after seeing Francis's body in the state that it was, they abandoned their climb and their summit. Sergei was found a year later on the lower mountain face. He had presumably died from a fall while attempting to rescue or reach his wife. Wow. Francis would be undiscovered again for another eight years due to snowfall, among other things. And in 2007, Woodall actually led an expedition to recover Francis's body, wanting to give her remains more respect and remove the urge for climbers to take pictures of or with her. Frances was wrapped in an American flag, and a note from her family was placed on her before she was buried in an undisclosed location on Everest. Mm. To this day, the Arsentives represent two of the most tragic deaths in history on Mount Everest. So the next one I have for you is Tesswing Paljor, or Green Boots. Green Boots is one of the most well-known bodies on Everest and was named for the bright green climbing boots still worn on the body. 
The body is believed to be that of Tesswang Paljor, an Indian climber who died on Everest in 1996. It still lies where it fell, and those who transverse the mountain's northern side can still see the body in the limestone cave at 8,500 meters elevation. Long before his fatal trip, Paljor dropped out of school after the 10th grade and began to work for the Indo-Tibetan Border Patrol, or ITB, and support his family. By 1986, he accompanied his team of ITB colleagues on the Everest journey. The group had planned originally and later became the first Indian team to reach the North Summit. However, fate had something else planned on the day of May 10th of 1996. A lethal storm overtook the group and they were simply no match for it. Paljor was physically strong and very aware of how treacherous the high altitude was, but the bad weather, unfortunately, was too powerful to combat. Soon after, Paljor and seven of his other colleagues were dead, with Paljor presumably taking rest in the limestone cave. Uh. Now, people that passed Paljor's body say that he simply looks like he went and laid down and went to sleep. Well, I mean, with with hypothermia, I've heard, isn't that the case? That if you have really bad hypothermia, that's what you, you're, basically your brain will make you want to do is just mm -hmm. go to sleep. And that's yeah. how a lot of people will pass away from hypothermia is basically laying down and going to sleep. Yep, absolutely. Um, May 10th also became one of the deadliest days in the mountain's history and was held until 2014. Wow. A sole survivor from their group remembers how bad things had gotten in the harsh gusts of wind, snow, and the below freezing temperatures. He urged the others in his group to turn back with him, but unfortunately, my, like many others will see, they had summit fever and were desperate to make history. Paljor's team wasn't the only source of fatalities on that day and several other guides died on the mountain on May 10th helping inexperienced climbers navigate back down. Paljor remains one of the most chilling bodies on Everest and has served as a marker for other climbers since his passing and from what I can find in 2014 the Chinese government who went up during the melting of the caps moved Paljor off the trail, and while his body is still visible, it's more difficult to locate for the inexperienced climber or the person that hasn't really been there regularly. Yeah, I feel like, especially in the case of Francis, the last climber, where they, they couldn't remove her from the mountain, but they could at least give her a more proper burial, I feel like that's respectful to the individuals to give the, their remains some more privacy and uh if not a burial something where like you were saying people aren't taking pictures with them or mm -hmm. making light of what happened basically absolutely and i believe that this was also an attempt at that as well and from what i had read when would all went up to move francis's body it was actually in his um, like 
log that he was going to try to move green boots to, but I presume something happened that he wasn't able to get to that one. Mm. So moving on to another individual who was lost on May 10th, Rob Hall was another climber who perished in the same disastrous storm that Paljor did. However, Hall's journey to the top of the mountain was much different from that of Paljor's. The climb on May 10th of 1996 began smoothly enough. However, as nightfall began, visibility became a serious issue. Nevertheless, the group successfully reached Everest Peak around 3 p.m., and began their descent shortly after, encountering an incapacitated climber named Doug Hansen. Hall decided to stay with Hansen as the Sherpas led the rest of the group down to a camp or to safety. Unfortunately, the blizzard that had incapacitated Paljor's team with its 150 mile per hour winds came barreling through shortly after. Hall and Hansen were stuck. About 12 hours later, Hansen died, and a member of Hall's team, who had begun ascending with extra oxygen for Hall and Hansen, went missing and is presumed dead. By 9 a.m. the following morning, Hall had managed to fix a broken mask regulator, but was already severely frostbitten on his hands and feet. He managed to call his wife on a satellite phone, and his last known words were, Sleep well, my sweetheart. Please don't worry so much. Oh my god. Hall's body remains in the spot where he perished to this day and is still one of the most well-known sets of remains on Everest. Hall's story is actually inspiration for the 2015 film Everest and the 1997 John Krakur's book, into thin air. The next one I have is Marco Sifridi. Now, Sifridi was 23 years old when he climbed to the top of Mount Everest on the morning of September 8th of 2002. His goal was set the previous year he had summited Everest and had become determined to find the holy grail of snowboarding routes. Which, I mean unique, but sounds like a really bad idea. Yeah. It was a near 13-hour climb on the morning of September 8th for Sifridi, and he had three Sherpa guides with him. Sifridi was overjoyed and eager to find a path covered with thick, fresh snow, unlike others whose eyes were solely set on the summit. It took hours for Sifridi to rest himself and get organized, and at roughly 29,000 feet in the altitude range, ominous clouds began to gather. The Sherpas with Sifridi urged him to reconsider, but to their terror and dismay, Sifridi put on his gear and forged ahead. The last Sifridi was seen was gliding down the mountain and into the clouds below. The Sherpas rushed back to base camp to beat the storm and spotted a lone figure once they broke through the cloud coverage 4,000 feet below. Now, they decided to go to the location where this figure was, but upon arriving there, there was no one to be found, and the Sherpas feared that they had experienced an apparition. 
which they took as an ominous message that Sifridi was dead. When the Sherpas made it back to base camp, their fear was confirmed as Sifridi was nowhere to be found. Nobody knows exactly what happened to Sifridi, but most experts have come to the agreement that he likely collapsed from exhaustion and was swallowed by one of the many ravines or crevasses on Everest. Although there is another theory that the impending storm may have easily triggered an avalanche on the northern face, which the peaks being so vast, it would have been really hard for the Sherpas to even see that or even realize what was happening right next to them. Mm. So that could give more explanation to there's the figure and then suddenly it's gone. Oh, I see. Yeah. The most, like, probably peaceful theory comes from Siegfried's sister, and she believes that her brother made it down the mountain and chose to live with the local yak herders in Tibet rather than returning to the chaos of the westernized world. So with that, we come to our last person and probably our most controversial person. Let's talk about David Sharp. After three previously failed attempts, Sharp attempted a last summit of Everest in May of 2006. Before leaving England this time, he assured his mother that he would never be alone. There were climbers everywhere on Mount Everest. Sharp would be climbing with a basic service package, which provided basically no guide, from what I could understand. And if there was, it was only available to a certain altitude. Mm. So there are other available like packages but those do have additional fees i presume after trying to summit this beast three times you're looking for the more inexpensive package plus you kind of understand your way through it however i wouldn't want to go up without sherpa if i was going yeah sharp was grouped with a number of 13 other independent climbers two of which also died during their attempts to summit that year. Now, prior to making his final ascent, Sharp had spent weeks going in and out of the death zone and never told anyone when he was leaving, how high he was going, or when he intended to be back. During this time, when he did come back to his previous destination with those people, he'd make comments of reaching British Camp 1 and British Camp 2, which were references to the fatal 1924 Mallory expedition. Before leaving for his final ascent in the first week of May, Sharp paid respects to the Sherpa tradition for the goddess of the sky. And an hour-long blessing by a monk or lama in the area to ensure a safe journey to the summit. He scaled the North Pole, an ice cascade riddled with gaping crevasses, and established camp at about 25,920 feet, where tents must be pitched at like a 45 degree angle, which is absolutely super intimidating. Uh. However, upon waking on the third morning, it was snowing and extremely windy, which caused him to abandon this attempt and make his way back down to a safer location. During this time, he plotted his next summit attempt and debated the use of bottled oxygen with an Australian mountain guide who considered climbing with 
uh, oxygen to be a form of gas doping. Sherp told this individual that he would reach for gas in an extreme emergency, but otherwise he wouldn't. The Australian Mountaineer guide suggested to Sherp it might be better not to tire himself with carrying heavy cylinders that he may not even use. By May 11th, Sharp had reascended to Camp 1, popping out of his tent to congratulate fellow climbers on their successful summits of Everest. Then, over the next three days, Sharp made his way back to the death zone. On May 14th of 2006, shortly after 1 a.m., David was near the top when he was spotted by a Colorado climber, Bill Kroos and his team of a dozen clients in Sherpas. Sharp apparently looked tired and sat in the falling snow as he disconnected from the fixed lines and let other faster climbers pass him. These climbers engaged in waves as they did, and Sharp waved back at the time. Krauss's party reached the summit and began descending around 11.20 a.m., when the guide noticed that Sharp was again at the base, off to the side, and out of the blowing wind. Horses party unclipped from the fixed line and reclipped around Sharp to get around him. When reaching the second step, Kraus noted that Sharp had moved higher, but just barely, noting to a fellow companion, that guy's going up pretty late today. It wasn't until later that this group noticed that Sharp was missing when they reached base camp. At around 11.10 p.m., while many other camps slept, another group began their push for the summit. At roughly 1 a.m., a group reached the limestone cave where the legendary Green Boots was, and the leader or guide of this group, Mark Woodward, noticed a shocking pair of secondary boots protruding from the cave's entrance. With his headlamp on, Woodward could see a man still clipped onto the red and blue guide rope, sitting just to the right of green boots. His arms were wrapped around his knees and he had no oxygen mask on, and small ice crystals had began to form on his closed eyelashes. A cameraman with the group yelled to the man to get moving, but there was no response. Believing him to be in a hypothermic coma and beyond help, no one radioed down to the expedition leader, Russell Bryce, for rescue. After pausing just long enough to unclip from the rope and pass sharp, the group continued to the summit. After about 20 minutes, a group of Turkish climbers from the Middle East Technical University's Mountain Mountaineering Club reached the cave, also seeing sharp. The group's Sherpa urged the climber to keep moving, but Sharp waved them off, stating, I just want to sleep. At around 5 a.m., a young Sherpa named Jorhi and Maxine Chaya, who had both made their way to the summit for the first time, got to see the sunrise when they reached its peak. Unfortunately, they never saw Sharp on their way up. On their way back down, they reached the rock cave at around 9.30 a.m., noticing the sun shining on a pair of bright red boots. At this time, Shina radioed Bryce. Sharp was unconscious and shivering violently, his teeth clenched, 
and his nose had started to turn a deep black with his cheeks and lips following suit. Sharp at this point was hatless without gloves or goggles and wearing just a thin pair of light blue woolen gloves. When the Turkish group had passed Sharp, he was still fully clothed. So when you reach a point of being cold enough, there is that stage where you start feeling really hot. So it's presumed that he started stripping off layers because he was feeling hot. Shina could see Sharp's crooked fingers were frozen solid at this point. Sharp's knees were drawn in front of him. In his bag was an empty can of oxygen. And although Dorshi attempted to give the man oxygen, there was no response. Bryce noted that there was nothing they could do at this point and reminded the two that they only had about 90 minutes of oxygen left and there weren't enough well-equipped people to carry an unconscious man down the tricky passage of ice. China and Dorshi stayed with Sharp for nearly an hour, crying and pleading into the radio before saying a prayer above the dying man and leaving. An estimated 40 people passed Sharp that day, and nobody helped. Wow. That's really heartbreaking, especially since he was located at a spot that was such a well-known point for climbers to be going past that it's hard to believe that many climbers did not notice him at some point, whether on the way up or on the way down. Yeah, and it's very debatable of those that did pass him, like, if they had the equipment to move him, if they had the willpower, or if it was self-preservation, was it summit fever? Like, there were a bunch of questions, but a lot of people go, you should have stopped, you should have helped, you should have helped, because ultimately, like, when you think about climbing and you think about, like, other people around you, like, your goal is to safely get up, get down. And if you can safely do it with others, do it. Yeah. Now, there are 40 people that passed him. At what point do you go, okay, we have enough people to do this? It's questionable of, like, morals. Like, what is the moral and ethical, like, standard here? Do you stop and rescue this man or do you continue onwards because he's beyond help? Yeah. Wow. So. That's really tough. Yeah, it's it's very rough. So that was the last person I have. I do have some statistics, though. So recently, there have been lines in some of the more dangerous areas, such as the Kambuf Icefall and the Steps to the Summit. Wait times have been upwards to two hours to ascend the ropes to the peak itself, which is highly dangerous in those areas. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Most people attempt to summit Everest in May or September as it's usually the most temperate weather conditions and specifically to avoid winds. Now, I had mentioned one like situation where the winds got to up like 150 miles per hour. But the highest recorded wind speed at the summit was 175 miles per hour in February of 2004. And for reference, a Category 5 hurricane usually sustains winds at at least 157 miles per hour. Wow. 
continuing on. The price range for a standard support or guide up the mountain is $28,000 to $85,000, but prices can run over $115,000 to climb Everest. Damn. Can see why you were saying after a few tries, you might want to save some money. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh. And like even going as far as like people that are summoning Everest and get that summit fever, like for some people, this is their only shot at it. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, it's kind of like, I feel like a lot of people want that like dinner party type thing. Cause this is definitely an upper class type of activity unless you're wanting to go into debt. Oh yeah, for sure. Like, I imagine it's that upper-class mentality of, I want to say at a dinner party that I summited Mount Everest. Oh, bougie. But honestly, (laughs) like, when it comes down to it, which one sounds better? I summited Mount Everest or I saved a man from dying on Mount Everest when it comes to David Sharp? Yeah. Because I'd rather have I saved a man from dying on Mount Everest. Yeah, me too. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really hard to think about because like you were saying earlier, it could have been a a case of self-preservation for some of them where they just did not have the equipment or the manpower Mm -hmm. to bring him back down. But yeah, if there's that many people in the mountain, though, you would really hope that maybe they could have radioed somebody and tried to get some teamwork going or something because if you could get some help together, then maybe something could have been done. Oh, absolutely. Now, in retrospect to that, though, it's a question of why there's so many dead bodies still on Everest and it costs an estimated $40,000 to $80,000 to bring dead bodies off the mountain and that price range can go upwards depending on where the location of the body is. Wow. I feel really bad for the families of the people who have lost um, individuals on the mountain just because yeah, especially if it's a case of maybe that individual could afford it, but they didn't come from a background of people that had that kind of money. Mm-hmm. Your family may have no way of even attempting to recover the body for a burial or anything. And that's even harder to think about of just not even having the choice to even try. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like going back to how there are so many people up on Everest, even locating them, because for instance, Mallory wasn't discovered for at least another 50 some years after his disappearance. It's finding them too, because it's like these people can go up on their own. Like for example, nobody knew David was missing when they reached base camp. Like it was when they got there, they're like, Oh, we're missing a member of our party. It's those types of scenarios of, like, you don't know where somebody went. You don't know where they are, and they just vanished. Like, where are they? So it's the question of, are you willing to pay that much money to possibly just come home empty-handed still because they couldn't find the body? Yeah, definitely. Whereas, like, people that know where people fell, like Francis, for example the Woodall expedition knew where she was. They uncovered her. They re-wrapped her and gave her some sort of preservation and, like, formal, like, respect to the body. 
mm-hmm. gave letters from her family to her before relocating her and making sure that she was out of view of the public eye. Yeah. There's those types of things that come up too, and it just makes for that full question of like, are you willing to pay that to get somebody off? There are other things that people that have died on Everest have said, leave my body up there because that's where I was going. It's what I wanted to do. Mm. So it really has a lot of double sided, like sword aspect to it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think at the end of the day, if that's that person's wishes, that if they're going to die in the mountain, they want to stay in the mountain, then it's, Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's still very hard in the family, but if that's what they wanted, then maybe that's the best, but it's still very hard to think about uh, just how excruciating the end must have been for these people. Oh, absolutely. Apart from perhaps if they had fallen or something, that may have been a quicker death, but like death by hypothermia... Or if they were injured and couldn't get down the mountain but still alive, that just... Oh, it's really something. It's it's intense. Like, Everest yeah. is no joke. No. Like, it is not oh something to fuck with. Like, I... If you want to go climb it, go to God bless. Because I, I couldn't. Yeah, I definitely feel like there's some places on Earth, as well as outside of Earth, that we just are not meant to be. <laughs> we, Me, scuba diving, mean, we're not meant to be down here. <laughs> exactly. We're not meant to be up here. It's really dark in this cave. We should not be here. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Caves, I'm like, eh, I could see an argument made for a cave, well, within reason. But yeah, bodily ocean top of these mountains those are the kinds of places where i just feel like you know what us humans i don't think we were ever intended to be in these kinds of places (laughs) exactly especially when it comes to like you need oxygen to get to the top of this like it's probably a good sign that like you're you're not meant to go to the top of there yeah kind of like you need oxygen to get to the bottom of here probably a good sign that you're not meant to be down there (laughs) <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you were not designed to go down or up too far okay stay in your middle range <laughs> yeah and i feel like i don't know i don't know if it's american specifically or it can, it's probably there's more cultures than just americans but i feel like uh, some cultures form this story of you know we gotta be the man and overtake nature and show that mother nature can't bring us down or whatever and our technology will uh over not overrule it that's not a good word but um bring bring us past these obstacles you know we can use our smarts to get our to think our way out of this we have the oxygen tanks we have all this fancy equipment you know we can do things that people couldn't do before and go places where no one could go before and and all these things i think there's a lot of that kind of thinking like i said i think it's a cultural thing that depending on what background you have and and um cultural background or how you were raised the in some places we're more prone to thinking those kinds of things but i think at the end of the day a lot of people don't respect mother nature enough and just how much power there is to some of these natural places and the elements and what they can do to you and all that oh yeah absolutely 
but the official uh, Himalayan database has recorded a total of 44 deaths in the icefall alone between 1953 to 2016. However, there are supposedly no recorded deaths between 2017 and 2021. And that might be because, like, especially going from, like, 2019 forward with yeah. COVID being a big thing, I'm not entirely sure what regulations were still in put for even climbing Everest at that time or how things are going now. But I know that, like, in late 2019, there were lines in a lot of areas trying to reach the summit, getting through the Cumbrew Icefall and, like, Anywhere in Everest, there were lines everywhere because it was so overcrowded, which is a horrifying thought if you're trying to summit and you're stuck somewhere that it's just ultimately a really bad place to be. Yeah, especially because the situation changed so quickly in terms of weather changing and then the fact that you're kind of on a time limit to begin with of how long you can safely be there just with oxygen and the circumstances and all that so i think anything you're adding like waiting line to that where you end up extending how long you're being forced to be there in these dangerous areas where you don't have enough oxygen you don't have just the physical capabilities to be in that kind of environment for very long i think you're just highly increasing the risk where that was already very escalated absolutely but the 2014, the record breaking that happened from May 10th of like 1996, the 2014 record break was actually 16 Sherpas that perished in the Kambu Icefall during an earthquake. Oh, man. And from what I read, it was a 7.4 magnitude earthquake and it just basically shifted everything. Shit. Which is absolutely horrifying. Yeah. Now, going further on with Sherpas, I feel they are vastly underpaid for what they do, as they make roughly 8000 to 10000 a year. Holy shit. Yeah, here I was thinking they've got to be making three figures. Or, oh, sorry, yeah. Three I'm figures, like, I think figures. they'd be making some <laughs> major moolah, but they're not. Wow. And in fact, after 2014, there was a huge protest by the Sherpa community to increase life insurance policies to $10,000 or $15,000. Oh my god. Yeah, that's ridiculous. They need to be making a shit ton more money and have much higher life insurance for what it is they're doing. Absolutely. I'm like, oh my god, that is such a low figure. Granted, money is different across, like, countries, but I still feel like that is yes. super low. That is super low. For the for the amount of price that, like, they're asking for, like, just standard support or, like, anywhere upwards to that, I feel like your Sherpa should be making at least 75% of that. At yeah. least 75%. At most, like, 90%. It actually should be them doing the pricing of being like, okay, this is how much you're going to pay me to go up this is how much you're going to owe me at the end of the day for getting you back down. (laughs) Right? Yeah, that's ridiculous. But the companies that, like, organize the actual, like, summits to Everest, the, they're making most of the money, which really, really fucking sucks. 
Yeah, that's not right. They're not the ones risking their lives on the mountain every day. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> so the last recorded Sherpa death was in May of 2017. And from what I can find, this individual fell to his death. It wasn't clear if it was in the icefall or if it was further up the mountain. But that was the last Sherpa death. And there have been none recorded since then. Which it mm. sounds like before the 2014 incident, there weren't any recorded Sherpa deaths since like 2008 from what I saw. And then there was a, another huge gap from 2014 to 2017. Hmm. So it sounds like there's safer like procedures with getting up the mountains for Sherpas, but they still, once again, they make up like two thirds of the bodies on Everest. Yeah. Wow. Now here's a morbid question for you that was kind of playing at the edge of my mind much earlier in the episode. I was wondering, so with the situation of the elements in a place like that, is the body basically mummified by the elements? Or what are the remains even like? Do they even decompose at all? Or is it just forever mummified because it's so cold up there? I'm so glad you asked because that was like... <laughs> It, like, laced itself within the research, but I'm like, I'm going to wait for Rita to ask so I can explain how this would work. Because <laughs> I know she's going to ask. I'm like, oh, God, I hope she asks before we end this episode. So with it being in such, like, a temperament, like, well, not temperament, a temperamental environment, like, you're going to have a lot of different, like, variables going on. So, like, if the body's covered with snow, it's more likely to be very well preserved because it's basically on ice then. Mm -hmm. There is no decay factor. You have no insect activity. You don't have that large range of other things that actually come to the body. Now, that being said, we can see with... George Mallory, for instance, when the winds are actually hitting the body, it's ripping away clothing. It actually, and unfortunately, if you do go look up pictures, there are pictures of George Mallory. You can see his head is exposed to which the rest of his head, from what I read, was perfectly fine, but the back of the skull is actually exposed because of the whipping winds. Or in Hanel Lore, um, in her case, because she was left in an area that was highly exposed to wind throughout her time there, there are certain areas that are still well-preserved, but the areas where that wind could get to her and basically wind whip whipper, the skull is actually exposed in certain areas, and you can actually see the flaking of layers for the skin. Once wow. again, don't suggest looking at the pictures unless you have a morbid curiosity, okay? <laughs> but there are photos out there, and I think with Everest and when it comes to, like, decaying research, when it comes to snow and ice, it proves to be a very useful area to study that. Is there any sort of decomposition relating to the thawing and then freezing of thinking seasonality i don't know how much i would presume really so like depending on up. where the body's at like sun exposure you could see more of that decomposition rate pull in and once again going back to henelor it's it could be the wind 
whipping through and pulling away at those layers. It can also be the sun beating down at her, thawing those certain layers. And then you also have what's called like hyper decay, which you'll see more likely like in archaeology and mummification processes where it hits oxygen or it gets some type of like situational change and it rapidly decays. Oh, I see. Yeah. So like when in Indiana Jones and the Temple of the Crystal, uh, yeah, the Crystal Skull one, I don't remember what it's all called, but when he goes in with Shia LaBeouf into those like ruins, like those Mayan type ruins at the beginning of the film, and mm. they poked a body or like opened the sarcophagi or the wrappings around it, and you could see the person for a little bit, but then it, like rapidly just fell in on itself. That's actually very accurate to what happens to a lot of mummification processes. And I think the most well-known was a Chinese um, empress that they opened her sarcophagi and she looked perfectly preserved for a couple of minutes. And then she rapidly decayed. Wow. So you could even theorize that that's happening a little bit here too. But when you also think of like, thawing freezing and then like thawing like unfortunately like meat or any other type of food again you're starting to lose value with that product as you go so when it eventually gets to a point where it's no longer usable like we usually throw it out but if you continue to watch it go down in decaying process it might actually decay a little bit faster hmm okay and that's just all off the top of my head. From what I understand and what I've seen going through my research field. But we can always get into decay a little bit later, too. Because I have this lovely book that I have yet to crack open yet. I was supposed to do it while you were gone, and I didn't. <laughs> we'll get there eventually. And who knows? I might be proven wrong. But from my research experience, that's kind of what would happen. But there are a lot of pictures of skeletal remains on Everest. There are photos of remains that are still going through that process of decomposition. There are remains that are absolutely 100% well-preserved on the mountain. So I think it depends on the position that somebody is at. And it also depends on temperature, winds, what's going on in your environment. You're going to see different Mm -hmm. stages of decay. So like I was saying, it makes it a very useful learning tool for decay in winter environments especially ones that are constantly winter yeah when i think about decomposition it usually the first thing that comes to mind at least from the little bit i learned in college about it in my classes was generally it does best in climates or environments that are warm and moist and you have exposure to wildlife uh microbacteria as well as other things like fungi and any number of things that will help break down and, and decompose. And so I think of extremely high uh, sun exposure, wind exposure, and I don't know too much about the exact conditions up in a place like Mount Everest, but I assume there's also some maybe extreme differences in temperature if we're talking midday hottest point of the year versus coldest part of the year and and coldest part of the night so a wide range there which would make it difficult for 
I imagine even microbiology to be sustained to a certain level or at least to follow its its normal operations <laughs> for lack of a better way of saying it. Uh, but in any case, uh, my point being that this does not seem like the kind of place where you'd expect to see a lot of good conditions for decomposition or what I would expect to believe through decomposition, of course, as I've said before. I'm definitely not the, the one here who's more of an expert on bodies and stuff. <laughs> it's just not the kind of place I think of when I think of good decomposition leading to either good soils or more like a swampy area. Things like, places like that generally are the places I think of if I'm thinking of decomposition. Yeah. And absolutely, like, going further on that, like, your areas that are providing to have more moisture, I hate that word, <laughs> I should say humidity, areas with, like, a higher humidity and a larger amount of, like, insect activity are going to be those areas that have a quicker style of decomposition, or even, like, having a body in a, like, an actual body of water, too, you can see how decomposition varies from there, how the bloating stage varies, how long the bloating stage will last, because these stages in decomp vary depending on where you're at, how readily the body is available to predators, insects, bacteria, and it's, it is a whole science on itself. Like, I, I have to give some props to people that just do decomposition all day, because, oh my god, like, there's so much that goes into it. And like I said, we will definitely do a deep dive more in on that later. But when it comes to Everest and the bodies up there, from the, like, research that I know on it from decomposition, I would presume, like, your areas that are covered are going to still be very well preserved because it's under freezing conditions. We can even go as far as to look at the Iceman that I believe was discovered in, I don't know if he was in the Himalayas or if he was up in like um, Alaska, but he was very well preserved. And there's even like Native Americans that were found in, I believe, Alaska that are down to their hair and the lice in their hair still wonderfully preserved. It looks like they died yesterday. Wow. So, depending on weather conditions and anything else going on in an environment, it has a very large role to play on how the body decomposes. Mm. But yeah, that was the bodies of Everest. I talked it up pretty good, didn't I? You did, yeah. You've been talking about it for a while now. I, I still can't believe I didn't guess it when you kept asking me if I had any idea. <laughs> <laughs> you're gonna be covering I'm like, but no I, I mean uh, <laughs> before this podcast I never even knew that was a thing I guess I just always assumed that whoever died on Everest they were able to recover the bodies and take them or at least most of the bodies could be recovered was always my mm -hmm. assumption I had no clue how dangerous and expensive it was to do such so this was a, a very a very good topic very morbid for sure but very educational Yes. And ultimately, like, I think the learning aspect to take from this is morals and ethics, too. Like, if you see somebody yeah. that's hurt and needs help, like, either 
assist them in getting help or assist them because there's there's no price you can put on a human life absolutely none yeah definitely for sure all right well i don't have much else for today Like, I, I, I brought you quite the a bit of death. Mount Everest were uh, <laughs> quite enough, quite enough death for the night. Oh, yes. Ugh. Oh, yes. Oh, man. <sighs> well, I hope you somewhat enjoyed in a morbid way. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I find it absolutely uh. interesting. Oh, my God. My cat just scared the shit out of me. I saw my life flash <laughs> before my eyes. <laughs> Oh, the pleasures of having a void and not being able to see very well. So all I saw was her like standing up on top of the dresser and she dropped. So it looks like she like just plooped out of my ceiling. I'm like, <laughs> like, excuse me, Freddy Krueger's in my house. I have to go. Oh my God. <laughs> Anyways, I think we'll leave it with that. <laughs> I can't even remember what I was talking about. Salem just scared the uh, fucking life from me. I need a Jesus same day shipping. Hi, baby. Oh, man. Thank you again for listening to Haunting Cases Podcast. Please make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Haunting Cases Podcast and on Twitter at Haunting Cases. If you have a listener tale, story request, or any questions, email us at hauntingcasespodcast at gmail.com. Be sure to rate us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. So, what do you say, listeners? Are you haunted too?